I'm just going to introduce my talk with a, a clip from West Wing. Any of you remember West Wing? Some of you are too young, right? So this is a, it's a clip from episode three of season two of West Wing, the midterms. And uh, if we can get this to work and get the sound coming out, the video quality, I think, might be quite poor. But the important thing is you might catch the sound. So West Wing is a drama about um, a fictional U.S. president called President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen. And in this clip, there's a kind of reception at the White House, and the president is there, and there's various people who are visiting. And in particular, there's a kind of radio phone-in agony aunt present, okay? And, uh, and the president gets distracted and he has a conversation with her. And you'll see, because he, there's quite a lot of scripture references in, in here, you'll see them later on. I'll make sense of it by explaining or following up on it, okay? MD. A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits. So I don't know whether you've ever come across that kind of thing before, but it's the sort of opinion you'll find people share and speak on the radio, on uh, maybe you hear them talking on the train or a neighbour, you're talking with them, and this is quite a common thing. People think that people of faith are kind of swivel-eyed lunatics who believe mad things, and, uh, and no sensible, sane person could possibly be a person of faith. And uh, so I'm here today because I want to talk about interpreting Scripture wisely. I believe all Scripture is God-breathed. And the next slide, Kyla, we have this passage in 2 Timothy. Timothy is one of the letters of the Apostle Paul in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is one of the great leaders of the early church. And he had a disciple, what uh, Jedi Knights would call a Padawan, uh, a follower, a young guy called Timothy, that he was uh, preparing and training 
in uh, Christian ministry. And he says to him, do yourself to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And the words put into the fictional President Bartlett are, uh, are, I suggest to you, rather misleading. And, you know, it's very easy to put up a straw man when you have somebody you oppose to kind of create a rather pathetic image of the beliefs of other people and to tear those down. And, um, and so I, I'm not going to explore all the things that were discussed in that brief clip. I have meant, talked about homosexuality before on a Sunday morning. Um, but I want to, us to understand the Old Testament laws, which is what was being referred to in that passage, need to be interpreted in context and to be understood because Jesus actually abrogated, he cancelled a lot of those laws. For example, there's a lot of food laws in the Old Testament about foods you, that Jewish people should and should not eat. And very clearly in the Gospels, Jesus cancelled all those laws and said we can eat anything. Okay? And you might say, well, what's, that in, it, what's it about in the past? Well, there were probably some reasons for some of those food laws. But I'd like to actually compare this, the Old Testament laws with some other law codes of the ancient Near East. So here's a couple of things. You know, if you go up to the British Library, you can see lots of artefacts from ancient civilizations referred to in the Bible, because the Bible is a historical document and is a very accurate portrayal of historical events. But you won't see these law codes in the Bible, because in the, the Bible, God gives his own law codes for the ancient people of Israel. And those law codes were for that nation of Israel as an actual nation. And of course, today, we have uh, nation states which have their own law codes, and so those are what we follow. But as Christians, we also have moral laws that we want to follow. But that's to get ahead of ourselves. So this is an ancient law code about 1800 BC from the ancient Near East, uh, from Acadia. And it says here, if a free man seizes another free man's slave girl, detains the one seized in his house and causes her death, so this is the slave girl of some other noble person, he must give two slave girls to the owner of the slave girl as compensation. Do you see that kind of reckoning? And uh, if he seizes the wife or child of an upper-class person and causes their death, it's a capital crime. The one who did the seizing must die. So do you see there's a difference there with respect to the victim? Can you see that? The, a, a slave victim was given less justice than an upper-class victim. And uh, I'm sure in many uh, law systems, to, even today, that still happens, actually. But it probably isn't written into the actual code of law. If we go to the next law code, the next slide, this is another ancient, this is a Babylonian law code. You've probably heard of the Babylonian Empire. And there it says, if a free nobleman hit another free nobleman's daughter and caused her to have a miscarriage, he must pay ten shekels of silver for her fetus. If that woman died, they must put his daughter to death. Now, how about that? Do you, do you see, what do you think of that kind of justice system? If you're, a, if you're a nobleman in Babylonia, you basically can't get punished. If you kill somebody else's daughter, it's your daughter gets put to death. Do you think that's very just? I don't think it's very impressive, is it? And, and so it goes on. So the law, these ancient Near Eastern law codes had a lot to, uh, that, that was quite unethical about them. And, uh, but if we focus particularly on slavery, which is uh, something um, that comes up in that Bartlett clip from West Wing where he says, I have this daughter, she's fluent in Italian, how much do you think I could get for her as a slave? Right? He teases this uh, 
this radio personality, or fictional, it's all fictional, obviously. Um, uh, and we might think, yeah, slavery's wrong. Why is the Bible talking about slavery? We must realise that slavery is indeed wrong, and, but the transatlantic slave trade that we think of that took place in the 18th century was a far more cruel kind of slavery than that, was the, than that which was practised by the ancient Jews. Because you, they didn't have a welfare state, and if someone became so poor they were really desperate and starving, they could sell themselves, but it was for a maximum of six years. And so it was a, a way of actually getting nourishment and some shelter for yourself and it was a kind of social, sort of social welfare system. But here's the superior laws of the Old Testament. Going to the next slide, there's a couple of slides here. So this is Exodus chapter 20. Um, we've got the, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. It's just a flat command to all people. Irrespective of your social status, you shall not murder. Irrespective of the social status of the person murdered, you shall not murder. And so we read Exodus 21, verse 12. Anyone who strikes a person, right, anyone, no matter what your social class, who strikes a person, no matter what your social class, no matter your gender, with a fatal blow, is to be put to death. Now, you might say, well, I've got a problem with capital punishment. Well, you might do, but it is, uh, you, you, there's something important about justice. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. There's a lot more ethics in Old Testament law than in the ancient law codes uh, of the other Near Eastern civilizations. The next slide, please, Kyla. Deuteronomy, another old book in the Old Testament. It says, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Isn't that marvellous? Already there was something in the Old Testament going towards what would appear clearer in the New Testament, that slavery was not a good thing. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. And, um, and then Deuteronomy 24, 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. A direct challenge to the Babylonian law code by which you, if you killed someone else's daughter, it was your daughter who was put to death as punishment. No, the Bible says, that is not right. It is the culprit who should be punished. So um, I bring this up because the passage we're going to look at in 2 Timothy today is about how young Timothy, being trained by Paul, is going to interpret the scriptures. And Paul is writing to him because in the church where Timothy is serving, there's a lot of people embracing all kinds of strange teachings and so Paul wants to instruct him to handle well the word of God. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. And that's the slide. It'll come up on the slide or you can pick it up on your phone with the Bible app. Or if you might have an actual paper Bible, you can look in there. So you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. Right? This is Paul speaking to Timothy. You, Timothy, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, how I actually live this teaching out, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance. Yes, the persecution, sufferings. What kind of things have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact... Verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
Verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue, abide, remain in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father God, I want to pray that as we turn our hearts and minds to this book written thousands of years ago, Lord, I believe it is God-breathed. It's inspired from heaven above. Your Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of this book that we might benefit from it. In Jesus' name, let it be a benefit for us, I ask. Amen. So um, twice in these paragraphs, Paul expresses his confidence that Timothy is not like these other people who misuse the word of God. And what is that confidence based on? If we go to the next slide, Kyla, it goes, we go back to verse 10. You see, it says, you, however, you, Timothy, I know something about you. You know something about me, right? You followed me and you've, you've observed my life. You know my teaching and you've seen my conduct So Paul could have appealed to logical reasoning to justify confidence in the scripture. But what he actually does is appeal to to say to Timothy, look look at my life. Look how I lived my life. You know, some people have said, uh, you know, I don't know, I I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And... In many ways, the only scripture many people will read is the scripture of the lives of people who follow the scripture. And... So, um, and, and that's very important. And it's very important because human beings detest hypocrisy. Right? If you have children, you will find they have big hypocrisy antenna. Right? They, they, they catch you out. They'll call you out for the times when you've said one thing to them and then you do something else. They will call you out on it because children are born with hypocrisy antennae. And, and adults have it too. So, for example... There's a famous French philosopher called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He lived in the 1700s. This is a picture of him. Uh, obviously not a photograph. I think that's before photography. He, Rousseau may be the original child-raising uh, expert. He was also a great philosopher about the, presenting a lot of the grounds for modern ideas of liberty and freedom and individualism. But he was also an expert. He wrote a book, a novel called Emile, in which he set out his beliefs about raising children and educating them and really advocated that children should be raised by their own parents, that, that parents should really love their children and stuff like this. And it, was, it swept across Europe. Obviously, this was a time when not many people could read, but among those who could read, his book was very influential. Long before Tiger Mums or any other book you might read today about parenting, he was the big parenting guru of the 18th century. But um, the curious thing is that he himself had five children and he abandoned them all at the Paris Foundling Hospital. So this is, and that's hypocrisy, isn't it? Telling other people how you should raise your children, how you should love them and how important that was. He reflected on his own childhood and how parenting had affected how he came out and then had five children and put them all in a foundling hospital. What a strange thing. You see, your way of life is a good indication of the truthfulness of what you believe. 
If you really believe something, surely it would work out in your way of life. I don't think Rousseau's convictions can be that well-grounded if he was so willing to abandon observing them himself. So does a person live out their own teachings? It's actually quite a test of the truthfulness of something. Uh, Do people continue in those beliefs even when they're unpopular and opposed? Well, here we read, don't we, that Paul was opposed. If we go to the next slide, Kyla. You know, he was... Oh, it isn't the next slide, is it? it must be the one before. But, he, you know, there was persecutions, he had suffering, and yet he still held on to this faith. So it shows us that these things matter to him. And then he finishes verse 11, the Lord rescued me from all of them. Um, well, that's, I don't know about you, but if I put again and again in Paul's life, we find he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was unjustly accused... He was in trouble. There was people trying to beat him up. And yet he says he was rescued from all these troubles. What is he going on about? It doesn't sound very like rescued when you read the story of his life. But it seems like he was saying, I I didn't actually die at any of these times, so I could keep on preaching the gospel. So I was rescued. Wouldn't it be great if we thought being rescued meant we could keep on preaching Christ? Right? That that was our ambition. Just think about that one. If you're a follower of Jesus, that would be a great ambition to have. And, and I also want to say from this that we should, we should stay in the boat of, of things. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. You see, Paul is pointing to Timothy and saying, look, you're going to continue in this faith that you shared with me. You, it was my teaching, my way of life. This is where you learned it. And we also read about the beginning of the book, We read that Timothy learned it from his mother and his grandmother. And so there was history. There were people he'd learned it from. And, you know, friends, it's important that we don't just sort of set out on our own to invent a religion. If you follow The Simpsons, there's one episode where Homer Simpson starts a new religion. And if if you need to start a new religion, I suggest you do go to America because they're very good at it over there. And... um, But, you know, there's been a lot of new religions started on the Bible. Things like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. These groups are quite separate from all the other churches. They they claim to have a light all of their own. And they don't don't participate in the wider uh, sort of Christian movement in terms of understanding scripture and what the faith involves. So we need to be careful about the provenance of where things come from. We need to think about where, where did this come from? Because if you get a Jehovah's Witness on the door and, you, and they have their own bi- translation of the Bible and you ask them, well, who translated this? They'll, they won't be able to tell you because it's a secret. And you think, well, what, why would that need to be a secret? If you go to the sort of Bible translations used by Protestants and by Roman Catholics, then you can find out who did the work of translation. And then you can find out, well, what are their qualifications for doing that? What are their qualifications in Hebrew and in Greek and all these things? And you'll find that there was a group of people did it so that, so that the translation wasn't the subject to errors or a hobby horse of a particular person. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So it's mysterious and it's not right actually to have a Bible translation made by people that you can't know the identity of. And similarly, Jehovah's Witnesses have lots of books and they'll, if you get drawn in by them, they'll try and sell you all their books. But they all come from the one publisher, the Watchtower Society, and they all cross-refer between themselves. Whereas when I was preparing this talk, I looked, up, I looked in the scripture myself, but then I looked up a book by a Pentecostal 
Bible scholar called Gordon Fee. Then I looked up a book by an Anglican scholar who's now died called John Stott. So it was exploring widely. And sometimes I read a book by a Catholic scholar in looking up. So you're looking at a variety of things. That is good practice. And just to bring some in that into everyday life, friends, the internet is a massive source of fake news and misinformation as well as true things. And one of the biggest skills of modern life is to learn how to work out what is bad news. So uh, uh, fake news, what is a bad source of things? So, you know, I was, a Christian emailed me, this was a few years ago now, a story in which the source was Russia Today. Well, I'm afraid I don't place a lot of confidence in Russia Today as a source, okay? Uh, and, and you might say, well, can you have confidence in any source? No, I think it is actually quite difficult and we need to be quite discerning. I think at least with some of the British newspapers and things like the BBC, they actually try to corroborate the facts that they report, but that doesn't mean you should necessarily believe the interpretation because the interpretation will be filtered through the political views of that newspaper or organisation. So we need to filter these things and be wise. So... There's a saying, isn't there? Gossip is halfway around the world before truth has got his boots on. And, and I want to tell you, fake news spreads very rapidly. Twitter, all these things, these are massive, massive issues. So it's so important that we look into the provenance of things. And so there's a graphic um, picture, yes. So this is um, picturing... Uh, sort of class where people are being taught about this church that they've joined. You see membership class, and here's this uh, diagram on the board, 1 AD, and then all the splits in the church all down the ages. And the teacher here is pointing at one little branch of this tree and saying, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. right. This is a humorous uh, cartoon, okay? And, uh, and, and that once one of the little people in the class is saying, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Um, no, the truth is we're so lucky to have Jesus, right? And, uh, and we have good fellowship locally here with other churches in Chertsey and Adelstone, and we have done the whole 23 years I've been here. We have good, uh, warm relations. We respect others. We might quibble over some details of baptism and other practices, but where people follow the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are, we, I would happily be in prison with those people for Jesus. Amen? So we, and we, we have true, um, therefore, harmony and desire to be shaped and to uh, listen to the scholarship of others. And therefore, I want to encourage you about that as well. Don't sit down with the Bible and invent your own religion. Right? Have that place where you respect the apostles' teaching like the early church did. So going on to verse 14 to 15, um, I don't know, hopefully I've got my slides in better order now, Kyla. Um, we read there that um, Paul says again, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. Continue in what you learn and have become convinced of. It's one thing to learn something and another thing to become convinced of it. It's one thing to learn something, it is another thing to become convinced of it. Now the next slide is a picture of my, uh, this is my little granddaughter Zoe. So I can show pictures of her because she's a baby, as long as she's not naked in the bath. Okay. And um, so, so I've got a note beside my bed to delete all the photos off the SD cards from my camera. Right? 
And, but you know, I haven't been able to do it yet. I've put the photos from the SD card onto my computer, right? And I've backed them up off my computer into the cloud. But I can't see that, right? And, uh, but I know they're there really because I can go and check. But at some point I need to be so convinced that I've still got those files because I don't want to lose them that I can wipe the SD card so I could actually take more photos on my camera. Yeah? But I need to have, take a step of faith about that, which is not just to know that those, those precious photographs I've got are up on the cloud and on my hard drive on my computer, but to be convinced they are there and I've done everything I can to back them up effectively so that I can wipe them off the SD card. Earlier, God spoke to us about decluttering. Did you, did you notice that? God said something we should... Somebody came up the front. I'm sorry, I've forgotten who. Brian, right? Over the summer, I thought... I looked, I had about... Every year, I fill about an A4 Lever Arch file with notes of sermons I've given. Now, you might have different clutter. You decide, I have lots of other clutter, believe you me. You'll have different clutter to me. But I had, so I fill about one a year. I'm 60 years old. I've been doing this initially voluntarily and then paid for 40-odd years. I had 35 of these lever arch files. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is too much. This needs to declutter. I have this fantastic auto-document scanner, auto-feeds things. So I scanned them, and I put them in recycling. It's, yeah, some of you know how hard that is. And, um, yeah, it's, you had to be disciplined just to get on with it. But you, to be, it's one thing to know something, but then to be persuaded that I have actually secured that archive, right, by scanning it, which was probably a bit unnecessary, because... Some of it looked pretty tedious. And, pardon? I have put that on the cloud. Yeah, yeah. There are various services that can be used. I didn't name which one. So, so then we go on. I just want to go on to the, the, the last section before I come back to this other section. So verse 16, all scriptures God breathed. Now, evangelical Christians want to particular not all denominations of Christianity will, will all denominations of Christianity will respect scripture but they'll put that in different ways now when we say god breathed we mean literally god inspired that the holy spirit inspired the writing of the scriptures and um, now that doesn't mean that when the apostle paul sat down on those particular days that he he, he, he kind of had his pen and he suddenly went into some kind of trance and his eyes flipped up so all there was was the white of his eyes and he goes like this, like some kind of automatic writing. That's not what Christians think, okay? Because it's clear that some of the people who wrote the Bible weren't even aware they were writing the Bible. So if you look at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he says, you know, Dear friend, um, I decided to research this clearly to find out so I could make a clear account. So it just sounds like it was a research project, he didn't perhaps realise it was going to end up in the Bible, okay? But, I st- but what we believe is the Holy Spirit was overseeing. So one, maybe in the morning, Luke was writing a, 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 a prescription. He was a doctor. Maybe he was writing to a patient, um, you need to get a poultice of this, that and the other and pop it on this wound for the next three days. And then in the afternoon, he sat down and he did more of his gospel. Well, in the morning, he was just Luke, but in the afternoon, it was God-breathed, Right? And God was at work in that. 
So we, we affirm this, that, uh, that this was inspired by God, and therefore it's a helpful, not just helpful, it's an authoritative document for us. Now, 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 what we would say is that it was those original letters. Now, in fact, Paul didn't write most of his letters. He had a secretary, he had friends who would sit and write while he dictated. Uh, we would say it was the originals that were inspired, and we don't have the originals so far as we know. So you might say, well, how do we know we've got an accurate one? Well, the reason is because people found these books so precious that they copied them in large numbers. And we have copies both from uh, just like 100 AD and 150 AD, and we have copies made about 1,000 AD. And you can compare copies, because the ones made in 1,000 AD are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Are you getting that? So if you can compare those two, you can see how many errors creep in through the copying. And the truth is, very few errors creep in. And there are no significant teachings of Christianity that are brought into doubt by any copying errors. Isn't that wonderful? These people were so diligent. They had such a respect for the scripture. And uh, if they made mistakes, because they didn't have a photocopier, they did not have an auto-document feeder like I've got, they had to hand-copy these things. And they, would, they had various elaborate ways for checking the copy was accurate, counting which letter was at the top of a page, what letter was at the bottom, things like this. And if there was an error, then the whole scroll was dumped. Right? They were incredibly disciplined because they had such a respect and reverence for the text of Scripture. So we can be confident that the texts we have today are very good copies of those originals. So uh, we read then here that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. There's a lot of people think the Bible's irrelevant, but the, the Bible itself says it's useful. It is actually useful. Isn't that amazing? The Bible is useful. Right? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. What for? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you know it's useful for your work? I don't know what work you do. You may be a plumber, a healthcare assistant, an accountant, a teacher, a nurse. You might be a cleaner, a manager, a caretaker. I don't care what it is. This book is useful for making you better at your work. It is. It's, it's useful. It's better for making you better at your work. So if you want to be better at your work, this is a good book to read, the Bible, because it equips us to be better at all these things. You might be a tennis player, a barista, a geologist, and a policeman. It can make you better at your work. Um, but there's something much more about this than that because the Bible could then just be treated like a sort of self-help book. You know, if you go into a bookshop or, not, or on Amazon or other good book suppliers, um, you'll find a big section of self-help books, you know, how to do all kinds of things. Well, the Bible is much, much, much more than that. And so... Um, because the Bible actually is very honest with us and tells us we are in trouble. We have sinned, we've fallen short, we've made a mess of life. And it's very challenging about that. So church is people who gather around the Bible. It's not, a wait, not like a waiting room for a job interview where we scrub up and we come in a suit, coming along to impress, saying, okay, God, I want you to know how much I've done. I have all this experience. I've achieved this and that. Here's my long list of things I've achieved, so I really think you should take me. Church is not like a job interview. It's like the waiting room for day case surgery. Right? You've been diagnosed with a problem. They've said they're going to operate. 
come in on Tuesday. Be in by 8 o'clock. You'll have the surgery that day, and if all goes well, you'll go home that evening. There's a lot of surgery done like that now. And you're a little bit in trepidation. You've got one of those gowns on that's all exposed at the back, so you're trying to keep warm. And, um, and you're worried who's behind you. that you're there knowing you are in need. That's how we approach the scripture, coming along as those who are in need. But if we go back to verses 14 to 15, um, there's a, actually there was a picture here because it says the Bible saves us. This is a, a, you get all over the world, there are museum pieces of Bibles with bullets lodged in them where a Bible has saved someone's life. Right? This, this, this Bible was donated, it says, to Leonard with love from Aunt Minnie, July 1915. He was, uh, he was fought in the First World War, and here's his Bible with the bullet lodged in it. Can you see that? So he had the Bible in his pocket here, and uh, so the story goes, if the Bible hadn't been there, it got all the way through by 50 pages. And believe me, there are a lot of pages in a Bible. So, so um, it saved his life. Now, the thing is, a mobile phone could do that as well. I mean, it could, couldn't it? I'm sure I heard a story after the Manchester bombings recently of someone whose life was saved because they were on the phone, and the phone took the shrapnel that otherwise would have torn through their head. Right? But when the Bible says in verse 15, if we go to the, the next slide, should hopefully show 14 and 15, um, the end of verse 15, uh, able to make you wise for salvation. It's, it's not catching bullets, okay? It's a much, much more important thing that's envisaged here. The Bible is not wanting us to kind of analyse it and get it. The Bible is wanting to get you. It's wanting to get hold of you. It's wonderful how Paul says, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Paul speaks about the Scriptures as if they're like a person. But actually, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is like a person. The Holy Spirit can make the Bible alive and active. And the Word of God is powerful because of the voice, the, the one who speaks it. So God is always trying to transform us through Scripture and to get us to trust that the Bible is um, from him and is inspired. Now you might say, yeah, but Andrew, I'm 43. I, I, I'm not, I can't go back to my infancy, so I've missed it. But just start now, okay? It doesn't matter that you weren't, didn't have, I didn't, I wasn't told, I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. But just start when you can. You might be 88, start then. And learn this scripture, which is able to make us wise in, for salvation through faith in Christ. Now, how does it do that? How is it going to do that? Well, actually, just read it, okay? Just actually read it. But it's not probably a book you start at the beginning and just read all the way through. You might get a little bit lost. What I suggest is it's in two parts. One's called the Old Testament, one's called the New Testament. So start with the New Testament, because that supersedes the Old Testament. It doesn't cancel it, but it, uh, it, it, it makes some of it obsolete and makes it like we were discussing earlier with that Old Testament law. It's replaced by what Christ said. So um, uh, we need to learn those words and they will give life to us because we live on these words. Because everyone lives on words. Words create our lives. Words are very powerful things. 
And many people live on all kinds of sayings. Have you ever heard this sort of thing? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Have you heard people say that kind of thing? They've gone through a tough time and they say, well, I always say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or, or you hear people say this, don't get mad, get even. You heard that one? Don't get mad, get even. That one's actually a lot darker. I don't think that's the kind of world I want to live in. Because if you live by that kind of word, you're going to be a nasty, vengeful person <laughs> at getting people back. And uh, I don't think I want to be around someone like that. So scripture gives us much richer words to live by. They're God-breathed words, and they can live by. And so through my life, I just found so many different things. For the last year or so, I think back in January, I sp- spoke from Genesis 26 and the story, Old Testament story of Isaac and digging out the wells his father Abraham had dug. And uh, all the quarrelling that happens, all the different wells that are dug and the difficulties. But in the end, he digs a well and there's no more quarrelling. And he says, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. And that phrase has just lived with me for months, right? Now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. And you can start to live on words like that. Not don't get mad, get even. Don't, don't live on words like that. Find good words from scripture to live on. Not everyone... You know, Scripture says, no one who turns to the Lord will be cast off, right? He, he will receive all of us. These are good words to live by. And I encourage you. Psalm 27 was very important to me also in the last year. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. My heart will not fear. Come on, heart. Stop all this fearing. You get into challenging situations. You start to fear. These are, it's God-breathed words upon which we can live.